2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 17. This quote, I, for some reason, I thought it was Dave Thomas that said it, the Wendy's guy, because they make square patties, uh, but it turns out it wasn't, so I can't give him credit, but the, the quote is, if you cut too many corners, you end up going in circles, right? It fits, but it was some Australian swimming coach that actually said it, so uh, I don't know. Well, anyways, I thought that was a, a good quote and kind of reminds me of what's going on in our passage today. Uh, when we start to compromise our beliefs or our convictions, um, what that quote is telling us is that eventually it, you, you go nowhere, right? If you make enough compromises in your beliefs or convictions, you end up going nowhere at all. And so unfortunately, this is what happens to David and the people of Israel in our passage today. God's anger is kindled against them, and as a result, David makes a, a lapse in judgment, which turns into a deadly mistake. Now, unfortunately, by the time he realizes what he has done, it's already too late, and the consequences are heavy. Now, as I was doing my study for this week, and, and I was thinking back on uh, pastor's message from last week when he talked about the, you know, when he became the pastor of the church, uh, and that veil was opened, right? And, and he got to see all the, the skeletons in the closet, right? All the, the uh, immaturity, if we will, in the church, right? There's lots of issues going on within the church, and I, I came on staff seven years ago. It was around the time Lily was born, um, so about seven years ago, and, you know, the pastor was gracious enough to kind of slowly, you know, baby step me into some of the things that were going on, um, but, you know, just over the years, seeing those things, and then just over the last couple of weeks when I've been uh, either meeting with people, counseling, or just hearing about stuff that's going on, um, a lot of it revolves around that, these compromises that are made in, in people's lives and the destruction that comes along with those compromises. If they go unchecked, if they're not being held accountable, if they're not seeking to honor Christ with their lives, like all these things are, they correlate with each other. And because of that, with what we're reading here and one of the passages I usually try to offer people in, in counsel for these types of things is James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. This is a passage I feel is really helpful for us uh, to consider when we think about this passage and, and all these types of things that go on. It says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It goes on to say this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, that's, that's where we find ourselves, right? When any sin that we commit finds its root in our, our own desires, right? We don't do things that we don't want to do. We only do things that, that we can justify or that we believe are godly, right? It's, it's always what we want to do. And, and the thing is, we all have weaknesses, we all have shortcomings, we all have sinful dispositions that we're prone to fall into. All of us have those. We have them, or I have them, you have them, and what we'll see in our passage today, David even has some. And I think it's important for us to recognize that, right? When it comes to these compromises, these little compromises, these lapse in judgments, or even taking days off, right? It's kind of putting in cruise control, I just need whatever. 
This, this is not how the Christian is to live his life. Uh, for one, none of us are promised tomorrow, so we can't say, you know, I'm just going to do this today, tomorrow I'll start afresh. No, we're not, we're not, none of us are promised tomorrow. And we should always strive to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has given us. And today's passage is a clear example of what happens when we lose sight of that. And so for those of you who are taking notes, we've got three points. And um, I was able to do an alliteration this time to try to help it make sense. But I think this is very comparable to the Christian life. And so I I think these points, along with what's going on here, is just very applicable for us today. So our three points are this, compromise, conviction, and then consequence. That's the way it played out in this passage today. Sometimes it's compromise, consequences, and then conviction. Uh, But for today's message and the way it's laid out in our passage today, we're going to go compromise, conviction, and then consequences. So what we're talking about is the compromise is what started all this stuff off. Second, we're going to see that David's conviction came after that compromise was brought to light. And then third, we're going to see the consequences, or you could call it the collateral damage caused by David's sin against God. So that's our little intro of what's going on. We're going to go ahead and read our passage. We'll pray and ask God to bless our time, and then we'll get right into it. So here is the passage, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, uh, while, they are while the eyes of my lord the king is, are still, um, excuse me, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's words prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army, or the commander and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from uh, Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and also or and to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. 
And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from that calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranu, Arauna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. That is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us pray. Amen. All right, so like we said, compromise, conviction, and consequences. So first, we're going to look at David's compromise here in verses 1 through 9. Our focus is going to more so be on verse 1 because verses 2 through 9 kind of play out what happens in verse 1. Um, but yeah, there was as I was doing this study, I was talking to my dad and, and my brothers about it yesterday. I was kind of, kind of having some, some uh, I don't want to call it struggles, but just trying to articulate some things. Like if, if you're, as, as a preacher or a teacher, right, when it comes to a certain doctrine, something you're trying to teach, you can spend hours trying to explain something, and it's, it's a little easier when you have an open time frame. But when you have limited time to try to describe something and you want to do it right, it's a little harder to do that. And y'all know me, I'm fairly, I can, I can be long-winded, uh, but that's not the intent, okay? Y'all always laugh so much when I say that. I've, I've gotten a lot better, okay? I've gotten a lot better. But uh, I, I, do, I want to res- be respectful of our time, right? But I do want to uh, point something out that's in this verse that's, it's, it's what's going on here, but it's, it's part of the greater picture, but it's a little piece that I think can cause us to stumble at times. And so the part that kind of gave me that trouble was as is the first verse, right? It says this, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number, the, uh, go number Israel and Judah. Now you may say, okay, what's the, what's the big deal here? Um, We've seen God kindled with anger against the Israelites over and over and over and over again, right? This is kind of the the calling card of the Israelites is stirring God to anger, right? That's that's kind of what they do. But what goes on, like as we study, as we've been walking through 1 and 2 Samuel, pastors mentioned it before, I've mentioned it before, but 1 and 2 Chronicles, they chronicle what's going on in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And so it's kind of like a condensed... Uh, version of what's going on and sometimes it's word for word sometimes there's information that's given in chronicles that isn't given in first and second samuel or first and second kings and this is one of those instances so why do i say that well first chronicles 21 is the passage that refers to second samuel 24 they're parallel passages and i'm just going to read the first verse which correlates with verse one in second samuel to to let you in on the the struggle the inner turmoil that um my inner nerd was having. Okay, so it says this. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Right, so we read in 2 Samuel that it says God was kindled to anger and he incited David. But then in 1 Chronicles it says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Right, so we're like, okay, well, was it God or was it uh, Satan? Right, who's the one doing the inciting? And if we're being honest, right, if, if, uh, if an atheist or someone who was objection, uh, like objectionable to Christianity, they would say, ha, there, here's a contradiction, right? There's all these contradictions in scripture, and this is one plain example that they could have 
you know, that, that shows that scripture is written by man, God's not involved in it, why even bother with this religion? Because here's, here's a contradiction. Why is, is Satan God? Is God Satan? What's going on? Why do these verses speak in this way? And I think that could be a, a, a valid question, right? If someone was to point this out to you, and, and they're a friend of yours, a cousin, family member, whatever, and they're like, look, how do you explain this, right? Where do you go with this? If, is it Satan or is it God? Because this one says this, this one says that. And I see some heads shaking, saying, yeah, like this is a, this can be a problem. It's similar to what we, when we read the resurrection accounts. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's different people that are going to the, to the, um, to the grave site. And there, there's answers for that. We don't have time to get into that, but this is similar. It's one of those things where we're like, man, how do we make sense of this? How do we harmonize what's going on in one portion of scripture along with this other? And like I said, I don't have all data to go over this, but this is something that's in here. And I felt like it was, it was uh, uh, pertinent for us to talk about. So the question is, who incited David? Was it God or was it Satan? And the simple answer is this. Yes. That's the answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? And she, well, okay, I'm going to leave it there, and we're going to continue on. I'm just kidding. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, that's that, right? Well, whoa, 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 what's going on, right? How can they both be true? Why is this a thing? Why am I bringing it up? How does this have importance to the sermon, right? Those are all questions that we should ask. And I think it's important for us to, to, to bring this up, right? If, when Scripture brings up topics, that's when we bring them up. That's why we walk through books of the Bible instead of trying to come up with topics on our own, uh, because God's word is infallible. It, it doesn't have any flaws in it. So as we preach through God's word, these things are brought to light. And then we're able to preach to them. You're able to learn from these things and see it for yourself and go back to the scriptures and learn how to figure these things out for yourself as well. That, that's really important for us. It, I don't have all the answers. Pastor Ricky doesn't have all the answers. Pastor David doesn't have all the answers. Our duty is to help train you how to read the Bible so you can figure these things out with the Spirit of God illuminating these truths to you, right? So that's, that's why we bring these things up. It's not like, oh, Laramie, like, I had to read and find this out. I didn't know the answer to this, right? So, excuse me. So, so there's these things, right? So what is, the, what is going on here? Well, I think the, the, the bigger issue that we see, and we see this all over the scriptures, is the fact that we get tripped up whenever we hear about God's divine intervention, right? He says he's going to do something, but then we see it playing out. And then God judges those people for doing those things wickedly, right? Like he says that these people are going to capture the Babylonians are going to capture the Israelites for their disobedience. But then whenever he frees them from that captivity, he judges the Babylonians for taking God's people captive. Like how they're doing what God told them to do. How do how do we reconcile those things? And that's similar to what's going on here. Right. In verse 10, we read that David was convicted for what he did. But in verse one, we read that God incited him to do it. But then in First Chronicles, we read that Satan incited him to do it. And so it's like, kind of like, well, how is God finding fault with David when we read that God is in some way inciting this behavior? It's confusing to see God is active in the situation, yet Satan is active in the situation, and David is active in the situation. Lots of stuff going on. Well, I think it goes back to what we read earlier in James, right? There, scripture interprets scripture. Scripture helps us put things in frameworks. Right. God does not, you know, God, you can't put God in a box, but God actually tells us who he is. So we're able to know who God is and, the, and the, the framework in which God operates to help us make sense of these things. So James chapter one, what we read earlier is God does not tempt anyone to sin, but in some mysterious divine way, God ordains all things that come to pass. Yet in this instance, it's Satan who is the active agent 
in inciting David to sin, David falls for that sin, and, and it's sin against God, right? So it's, you probably still like got deer in the headlights, but this is what's going on in this situation. God ordained these events to bring forth judgment to the people of Israel. Satan is the one that tempts David. David, instead of resisting the devil, standing firm in his faith, he falls into that temptation. Therefore, God pours out his wrath on the people of Israel. Crazy, I know, but this is the truth. This is what happens, right? No one is, is innocent, right? People are doing what they want to do. What they do is sinful. God judges them for it. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult to grasp. It's a difficult concept to grasp, but it's, it's all over the scriptures. And, and I want to read from our confession because I feel like it does a better job of me explaining this than I can do myself. And so in chapter 3, we hear about God's decree, right, his, his will, what he has ordained to come to pass Uh, We read about this here, and so I want to read this because I think this helps articulate this a little bit clearer um, for us to understand what's going on. Excuse me, it says this, from all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of himself, right, without any influence. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely, not under compulsion, and unchangeably, without modifications, Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any, anyone in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. So what that, basically what that's saying is in God's sovereignty, nothing happens outside of his control. Nothing happens outside of his decree. But being creatures with our own wills, our own desires, we're fully responsible for the things we do. Right. It's we're not told exactly how this works. We're just told that it works this way. Right. I every time I sin, I do it because I want to. I don't do it because God's making me sin. But at the same time, God is using that sin to bring about good and his glory. How does that work? I don't know. I'm just told that it does work. Right. As we read the scriptures, these are things that we read and then we find out. Proverbs 16, 9, it says uh, man plans his steps and it's the Lord that directs his path. Right. Man is doing whatever he wants to do. But in some mysterious way, it's God's will that he does what he does. Proverbs 21 one says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The heart of the king is in is in the hand of the Lord. It's like a stream of water and he turns it wherever he wills. Right. So David's a king here. So if God has a desired purpose and will, he's going to make that thing come to pass. How does that happen? We're not told exactly the intricacies of that. That's God's hidden divine will. But through the scriptures, we can kind of come to these conclusions and put parameters around our thoughts to help us make sense of it. So hopefully that kind of makes sense. Pharaoh's another great example, and he was one I wanted to bring up. When we think about Pharaoh, God hardened his heart, right? It says that in, in Exodus. God is telling Pharaoh, let my people go. But then he hardens Pharaoh's heart and, and he refuses to obey God. That, that's clearly written in Exodus. That's what it talks about. But in our minds, from our perspective, we think God is coercing Pharaoh to have a hard heart against God. We kind of think that way because we don't have any point of reference from God being sovereign and omniscient and omnipotent. We have no concept of that sort of infinite wisdom and, and all of that. But I think a a great way to try to uh, illustrate this for us in like a human terms, when we think about God using evil people to accomplish his goals and Pharaoh being one of those, imagine, and like I said, all human examples fall short when we're trying to 
reference them to God, but imagine Pharaoh being a, a feral, rabid dog on a chain, right? He's only able to bark and go as far as God allows him while he's on that chain. But for whatever mysterious reason, God, if he wants him to, you know, he's telling him don't attack. But as he attacks, if there's a purpose for giving him, leading him off of that chain and hardening his heart by letting him go, uh, unrestraining that evil to accomplish something, God will do that. And so that's kind of the, the idea that we get. It's not God is perverting his heart and making him angry. He's already an unbeliever, and he has no desire for God to begin with. He's just allowing his hardened heart to get harder, right? He's removed any restraint to allow him to fully embrace those evil, wicked desires that he already has, and then it plays out the way that God intended it to, okay? So, like I said, deep stuff, kind of like, where do we get this? But this is what we see when we think about God ordaining these events to occur. We see Satan as the active agent that's tempting David, but then David is the one that has the choice, right? He has the freedom to choose to obey or to not obey. In this moment, he chose not to obey. And within all this going on, this was exactly what God had ordained to occur. Okay, so yeah, deep stuff, kind of, hopefully I didn't lose y'all. Uh, hopefully you're kind of following along, but that's what's going on. God's anger was kindled against the people, and he, had, he was going to pour out his wrath, and this is how he chose to do that. Uh, now, going back to this census that David takes, we're not told what type of sin is going on and why it was a sin for him to do this census, because we go back to Exodus 30, God lays out parameters and when to do census and why they're allowed. So David would have been allowed to do a census. However, we find out in our next point that it was sinful for David to do it in this moment, right? The act wasn't sinful in and of itself, but the desire behind David's heart to do the census is what the problem was. So let's look at that in the next couple of verses, right? And this is uh, verses 10 through 14. We're only going to read verse 10 for the sake of time. But this is where that compromise that he made uh, comes to light and it brings forth the conviction that he now has for the compromise that he made. So verse 10 says this, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Very foolishly, right? Not kind of. It was, a, it was a terrible thing that he did. He recognized what he was doing in his heart. Deep down, he had the wrong motivations behind it, right? And I think there's, off, there's lots of times in our own lives where we could be doing something that looks right on the surface, right? Serving in the church, preaching, teaching, coming to church, whatever. Whatever it is, right? Um, it looks good on the surface, but deep down, there's ulterior motives, Right, your, your heart, you're, you're, you're honoring God with your lips, but your heart is far from him in that moment. This, this happens to us more often than, than we'd like to admit and more often than we'd like, right? I, I, you know, just thinking about it, there's moments where, like I said, it starts in the, in, the, in the mind, goes down to the heart, and then it comes out in the action. And how, how many of those times could you say in your own self when, when you've kind of thought about something, then it, it, it's kind of resonating within you. You're meditating upon it, if you will. And then you do it just like there's an immediate response of, oh, like that was, that was dumb. Like I shouldn't, why did I do that, right? Why did I do that? I think about this uh, weight loss competition that's going on right now, right? There's some folks uh, partaking in that, uh, myself included. And, um, you know, for, for you guys that are a part of this, right, or anytime you've attempted to lose weight, you know, you can 
go to work or be at home or come to church and then you just see snacks, desserts, cupcakes, pies, right? All, all the good stuff, right? Buttery breads, all that stuff, right? Just deliciousness. And you're like, ah, like I, I need to stick to this salad that I'm eating, you know? <laughs> Like I did, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, eat right, and then you're like, okay, well, just a little bit won't hurt, right? It's, it's everything in moderation, and then you just go to town, right? You just tear it up, and then afterwards you're like, ugh, like I, why did I do that? Why, why did I do that? Right? There's an immediate regret, right? You, not that that thing was bad, right? But the way you partook in that thing is what made it, made it bad, and so. You, you really couldn't enjoy it, right? In the moment, you're enjoying it. We, we always enjoy sin in the moment. It, it's, it's always enjoyable in the moment, but there's, there's that moment where God will not let our hearts be settled with the sin we've committed against him, right? He's dwelling in our hearts, and here we are filling ourselves with sinful uh, things that cannot dwell in his presence, and so it does not sit well with God, and then in turn, it won't sit well with us, and this is what happened with David. Once again, nothing wrong with a census, but whenever the word came back to David, nine and a half months later, right, this has been going on for a while. Uh, I think we can kind of, you can kind of relate this to his sin with Bathsheba, right? Right before the baby was born is when he was finally, his sin was finally brought to the surface. There's a lot of parallels here. Um, that's when it finally hit him, right? When he finally recognized this was, this was not what God had intended, right? I acted very foolishly. So instead of these numbers coming back to him, hey, we got, um, I already forgot the numbers, 800,000, I think it was 800,000 and, and uh, 500,000, whatever the numbers, 470,000. So instead of hearing these numbers and being like, oh man, this is, this is music to my ears, right? The God has blessed us mightily, his, his people are bountiful, and we are this powerful nation because all the things that God has done, right? Instead of this being music to his ears, when those names came back or those numbers came back to him, it was like fingernails scratching a chalkboard. You know, it, it went from pleasant to un, unpleasant, right? That's, that's, what that, that's what sin does. It, it ruins everything. It destroys everything. Once, once it's conceived, it brings forth death, right? That's what we read in James. And that's what it did for David. You can never truly enjoy something when it takes sin to get it. Amen can never truly enjoy something when it takes sin to get it. The reason that is is because it's idolatry. You have taken God off of his throne, which we really can't do, but figuratively, you've taken God off of his throne and put something in its place. And then we're trying to, trying to give worship to this thing that cannot bless us in any sort of way or fashion, right? That, that's what idolatry is. And we all do it, right? Anything that we're willing to sin to get is idolatry, right? This morning is a prime example of that for me, right? I'm, I'm like trying to put my finishing touches on this, and I'm in our little office slash playroom, which probably is an oxymoron to begin with, and the kids are just in and out, in and out, in and out, right? Daddy, this and that, daddy, this and that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. Daddy needs to finish this. Please give me some time, right? And, and then finally got to the point where I was like, like locking the door. Y'all need to stay out of here. Go ask your mom. You know, like, okay, well, there's a better way to go about that, right? And, and like as, as it's coming out of my mouth, it's like, what are you doing? Like, this, this is unacceptable, right? Like, here I am barking at my kids. I'm like, I need to finish this sermon so I can preach to God's people, you know? Like, it's, it don't work that way. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Y'all aren't alone, right? It's, it's all of us. We all do this. But once again, for whatever reason, David idolized these, these numbers. I mean, you know, you, we may think it's silly today, but in reality, who here 
goes to their bank account to see how much money they have, right? Like, okay, oh, I'm good. Because of this number, I'm good. I'm comfortable. I'm okay, right? We'll, we'll be able to make it another month. That money could easily go away with any bill, right? But we find comfort in that. So what's the difference? What's the difference in David finding comfort in the amount of valiant warriors that he has to protect him and his people versus our bank account, right? Because that's where we find comfort and safety. Same, same thing, right? David's, David asked not to be given into the hands of people, right? He didn't want to flee again. He, that, he's like, God, do whatever you need to do, but just don't cause me to be pursued by other men. I just don't want that anymore. So maybe, right, having these large numbers, that's where he was finding safety, right? Like I said, I'm speculating because we're not told specifically. David doesn't confess the specific sin, but I think it's, it's easy for us to relate to him and how he idolized these things and how it brought about conviction in his life, right? So what was the result of this lapse in judgment that he had, this sin that he had against God? Well, it's written out for us in verses 11 through 14. This is, this is when his sin is brought to light and he's being presented with the potential consequences of his sin, right? I, this could have been in the next point, but I felt like it was good to mention it here. So let me reread verses 11 through 14. It says, And when David arose in the morning, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to your land, you and your land, uh, or will you flee three months from, uh, before your foes while they pursue you, or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what I shall consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Right? He's like whatever God is going to do, he's merciful and gracious even in punishment, but just don't just don't give me into the hand of, of man. He, he, he was tired of running, right? He was tired of running. Just whatever, God, whatever you want to do, that's what you do. Um, but here in God's grace, right, he, he gave him the option. You, you choose, do you want the belt, the switch, or the chancla, right? Like, which way are you going to go? And, and, and you decide. Or just you go get the switch and, and you know, bring it in, right? The kids haven't had to do that. Not today, but that's, 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 uh, that's for us older folks. Um, but, yeah, so what are the three things, right? Three years of famine, well, the crazy thing about this is, you know, we read in chapter 20, um, 22, the, the, the psalm of, or that song of David, right? That's Psalm 18, and it's this beautiful prayer. Uh, and then Psalm, or excuse me, then chapter 23 was what we read about last week was David's last words, and then the valiant men, right? All these men are kind of tallied up. That was going on, but if we back up to chapter 21, just two chapters before, uh, the people of Israel were experiencing three years of famine, right? They had just had three years of famine, and it was because of the sins of Saul against the Gibeonites. And that's when uh, David offered up, you know, he asked the Gibeonites, let us know what we must do to make things right. Give us uh, Saul's kids. He gave them all of them but, but Mephibosheth. They, they killed him, and then all was right in the land, right? He, he reconciled uh, the Gibeonites with the Israelites, and then the famine was gone. So they had already gone through this just in the recent past. Uh, so more than likely, he didn't want to do that again. The three months of being pursued, this another thing, right? He's, he's already experienced famine. He's already experienced being on the run. He, and he's done that most of his adult life. He's, you know, he's had it up to here with that. He didn't want that either. 
But the three days of pestilence, this is the one that's it's really difficult because, you know, when we think of pestilence or, you know, droughts and famines and different things like that, it's almost like three days, how bad could it be for three days to shut up the heavens and there no be, be no rain or, you know, be, you know, tons of mosquitoes or something, right, when we kind of think of pestilence in that sense. But these were plagues that would affect the people, like man, woman, child, crop, animal, like everything is going to be affected in the land by this pestilence. So whether we don't know if it was boils, heart attacks, strokes, cancer, it could have been anything, right? Any, anything could have been going on, but it's, it was a pestilence that struck the land in a, in a very deep, um, almost, almost reckless way, right? This is what's going on there. So David didn't want to choose any of those. And what we find out later is because these are his sins, not the sins of the people where his mind is going. So he's like, he's not wanting to say, yeah, strike these people dead or give them famine. He's just kind of like, Lord, whatever you want to do, I know it's going to be right. It's going to be perfect judgment. Like, I, you know, I can't, um, I, I can't doubt that what you're doing is right. He, doesn't, he decides he doesn't want to pick one. He just says he wants it to come from the hand of the Lord. And so I, when I think about that and we think about conviction and repentance, right, repentance is not only a, a change of mind. Whenever David is experiencing this repentance in this moment, we have to remember repentance is a gift from God. God is one who grants repentance. He's the one that opens our eyes, changes our hearts, and does all of that. And so when he does that, it's not just like a, a switch gets flipped and then, it's just like, oh, yeah, I'm good now. I, everything's good. No, it's, it's not only a, a change of mind, but it's, it's humility. It, it's meekness. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's all these things. It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit, which is one fruit, not many. It's one fruit. It's the Spirit of God that's, that's um, working out in the life of this, of this individual that's going through that. And so what, what repentance will say, hey, there's been damage done by my sin, and I'm here to make things right. That, that's my desire. I, I'm, don't worry about me, right? I'm here to make things right, and whatever has to be done, that will be done, right? David's plea, David didn't plead for mercy and then say, hey, man, I already said I was sorry. Like, what more do you want from me? That's a lot of the ways that we treat each other today, right? Well, didn't I say I was sorry? Like, what else do you want me to do? That's not what David is doing. That's not true repentance. What David says is, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, right? He's going to let these chips fall where they may. God is good and, and his mercy is great, but his, his holiness must be respected as well. And so justice must be served in this moment. Now we may say, okay, well, on this side of the cross, right, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like, yeah, that's absolutely true, but that doesn't negate earthly consequences for our sins, right? If I go out and kill someone, God is going to, you know, if I truly repent of that sin, God's going to forgive me and I'm going to be with him for an eternity. That doesn't mean I'm not going to go to jail for doing that, right? There's earthly consequences for sins. And so David is experiencing those same things, right? God's not kicking him out of the kingdom because of these sins, right? So there is no condemnation ultimately, but there is a retribution that's in store uh, because God's law was violated in this time. And so, yes, there are consequences, earthly consequences for sin, and that's what leads us to our last point. This is verses 15, 16, and 17. Let me... So what were the consequences of David's sins? It says this, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 
And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, wow, I had this before, Arana, I will just say Arana, bear with me, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. These, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's household. Lots of stuff going on here. Um, but one thing, the first thing I, I noticed, right, the, the term from Dan to Beersheba, it was mentioned in the, in the census taking, and then it's mentioned here. It's mentioned in Judges, in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, in the Kings, in a bunch of different places. And what that, that phrase means, uh, for those of you who are wondering and like fun facts, it's kind of like it's a euphemism for all of Israel, right? Like saying from L.A. to New York or from north to south, and everything in between, right? It's, it has that kind of uh, language. But what, what's going on when this language is used here, whenever this census was taken to find all these men, right, all these valiant men, that's, it's, it's using that same language to show us, okay, this is where the census went and this is where the pestilence went, right? He sent all these men out to do these things and then God sent in all these, this angel, this angel of death to go through and, and extract his justice through all these same places. Um, and, and what we find out is 70,000 of those men who were counted in this census were killed by the pestilence because of David's sin. Now, when we think about David's response in that in verse 17, I, I've, I've been troubled trying to find the exact word I want to use because it's, it's amazing to see a godly response like that. But then it's like, it's it's a it's 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 a brutal situation, right? Like so, it's kind of I don't know, like agonizing to to see what David is doing. Like he is witnessing this destruction of his people, and then he's crying out, like, "Behold, I have sinned. I am the one who have done wickedly." But these sheep, what have they done, right? Like I, I'm the one that should be in, be punished right now. But here are seventy thousand men before his eyes. He's seeing this angel of death that God has sent out striking down these people, which, like, is kind of. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine what that would look like, right? Like, are these men just dropping dead or what's going on, right? I don't want to get, <clears throat> like, graphic, but, like, he's seeing the consequences of his sins playing out before his eyes, right? A lot of times our sin, they kind of go unnoticed or we get convicted and there's no real consequences out here. But this one decision that he made, uh, he's seeing the lives of his fellow kinsmen being struck down because of it. Innocent men, right? Innocent men are being being killed because of his actions. And, you know, but when I see it, I'm like, man, I, I get it. I get how he feels. Because when I think about my own family, right, the, the way that there's times where I treat my wife or treat my kids, and I think about, like, behaviors that, that are, are poor in, in my life, they're, they're, you know, as they say, more is caught than taught with, when it comes to kids. And, and so, yeah, I, I can't blame my wife for the, the ways that she interacts with me if, it's a direct reflection of my interactions with her, right? I can't blame my kids for their actions if they're just kind of repeating things that I do. I can be upset with them, and yes, if they're sinning, they're sinning, but at the same time, it's like this, this reflects poorly on me, right? My, me and my leadership. That's, that's the issue that, that, I, that I need to think about. And so that's, that's where David's response 
uh, you can tell that it's, it's true repentance, right? He's saying, don't take this out on then I'm the one you want, right? I'm the one that sinned against you. Bring this against me and my household. Don't, don't go anywhere else, right? That buck needs to stop with me, right? Here I, you know, but it's too late. The, 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 the judgment was rendered and God was doing what was right. But in his heart, right, he's like, I'm the one that's at fault. I'm the one that's done these things. Why are you taking this out on them? And this reminds me of what I share with the men in our trades meetings, right? When we get together on Thursday for our men's group, we teach what the Bible teaches, right? As men, we are heads of our home. Whether you're single, you're married, with no kids, with kids, you're empty nesters, it doesn't matter. Whatever your home is, that you're the head of that home. And as a man, right, I'm given the role of prophet, priest, and king. Now, I'm not literally a prophet like Jeremiah or any of the, or Gad in our passage today, but we fill those roles in a spiritual sense, right? So as a prophet of my home, I speak God's word to my family, right? I speak on God's behalf to my family. As a priest of my home, I intercede on behalf of my family before God. I am to be praying for my family and their needs and their, their sins against God, right? I should be praying for these things. So I'm not only speaking God's word and, and attempting to share God's word with them to infiltrate every aspect of my life, I'm also, as we sin against God, right, I, I'm going before the Lord in prayer and praying with them. And then as king in my home, I represent God to my family by how I rule and reign within my home. Now, you may say rule and reign. These are like, okay, yeah, they're, they're words, but they're, it's just, they're not evil words, right? My, my goal in my home to rule and reign is to do so in a godly fashion. That, that's, I'm representing God within my home. That is what I'm tasked with. That's what I'm called to. But if I'm the one who's ruling with an iron fist, what is that showing to my family? Right. If I'm the one who is absent, lazy, selfish in how I run my home. Right. I'm contradictory in the things that I say versus the things that I do. What does that say about God as I'm representing him in my home? But if I'm fair, if I'm firm, selfish, compassionate. Right. If I'm those things to my family. What does that say about God? Amen. That, that's me representing God in my home. And, and I'm all of those guys. I do every one of them, right? That, that's, that's, that's me. I do every one of those. The iron fist, the lazy, selfish, absent, and then here and there I'm firm, fair, and, and compassionate, right? Like I try to do that more than others, but I'm, I'm guilty of all of them. But that's, that's the, 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 the perspective the man should have in his home. <clears throat> you are representing God in all these different ways, whether you're single married, you're with kids, no kids, whatever. It doesn't matter. Grandparents, great-grandparents, that's who you are as a man. That, that's your role within the home. I represent God. I represent Christ in those fashions. And for David, right, as king, which he was king over Israel, he was supposed to represent God in his role among God's people. But he made a very selfish decision, and in doing so, he was using that position that God blessed him with in vain. He did it to fulfill selfish desires, whatever that reason was. Like I said, we're not told, but David knew that he had sinned against God in that moment. And as we know, sin does not go unpunished. And David had a front row seat to see the destruction of his momentary lapse in judgment. Now, when I say lapse in judgment, you may think, oh, well, he just slipped a little bit. No, no, no. Like it's, well, lapse in judgment is a failure to concentrate, right? Like it, 
you, you allowed yourself to be taken over by this thing, right? It's, it's your choice. You have every decision, every opportunity to, to do what's right. God tells us clearly in his word, there is no temptation that's uncommon to man, but he has given us an opportunity, a way out to escape those sins. So yeah, praise God exactly, right? So no, no sinning that we do, we can say, oh man, you know, the devil made me do it. All he can do is offer, accuse, and, and throw it out. That's all he can do. We're the ones that got to take it. Right? He just throws the bait out there. We're the ones that got to snatch it up. But this is what David did. Right, This momentary lapse of judgment caused terrible damage amongst the people. Seventy, At least 70 households were forever uh, wrecked because of this one decision that David made. And I think it's important for us to recognize today just how crucial every decision we make within our homes are. Right now, they may not have that long-lasting effect, but every sin is a sin against God. Every sin is a sin against God. And it doesn't matter, well, it's just one time, or, you know, I don't normally do that, or I was just hungry, I was just tired, I, I was having a bad day, or you shouldn't have said that to me. None of those are valid excuses before God. God doesn't take any of them, oh, you know what, yeah, that's, that's right. You know, you, you wouldn't have normally done that. That's not in your character. No, no. God knows us better than we know ourselves, and we don't do anything that we don't want to do. It's not like someone's holding a gun up to your head telling you to sin. Right? We do it because this is what we want to do. And I think that's important for us to recognize because that, well, this is just one time turns into a habitual um, excuse to, to continue in our sin. But for David, right, this was, it was sorrow, it was sadness, it was, it was a disgust for his sin, and it was, it was true repentance. That's what David experienced in this moment, but it, it was sin that he committed through this compromise, right? He decided to listen to his heart or Satan versus listening to what God's word had said. Now, in closing, God gave David the title of a man after God's own heart, right? This is what David, this is what God said about David, and it's true, right? This, this is not a, a, a drag David through the mud sermon. Now, that, that's not the intention, uh, I believe this, is, this passage is a prime example of why that is true about David. Now, you may say that's, that doesn't make any sense. That's why, why seeing David's sin a prime example of why he's a man after God's own heart, right? How, how does that make sense? Well, isn't that the, the life of a true believer, right? We, we sin, we confess our sin, and then we trust in Christ for the forgiveness that he gives us, right? That, that's the Christian life. It's not, I'm, I'm perfect, and you look at me, and I'm doing it. That's the Pharisee. That's that whitewashed tomb. That's not the Christian life. So when someone tells you, oh, I'm, that's, the church is full of hypocrites, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. I, I don't live up to the life I'm called to, but I'm not, I'm not going to. I, I strive for that. But it's never about being dishonest about my failures. It, I'm forgiven, right? That, that's the difference, right? David, right? He's, he epitomizes the Christian life, right? He's not our savior. He's not perfect. He doesn't always respond right to every situation. But something, something that we can consider for him is he's flawed and he's forgiven. He's real about his sin and he's repentant. He's broken and he's blessed. Amen? That's, that's who we are. And, and if you think you're something else, maybe, maybe you're in the wrong place, you know, but this is who we are, right? Have mercy on me, the sinner, right? We're the tax collector. That, that's who we are. I, I need mercy. I need, I need hope. I need, 
I need strength to do the things you've called me to do. I can't do them on my own. I never will be able to. I, I need you to help me do that. I need, when I say you, yes, God, I need God, but I need you as well. We need each other. We need God's word. We need to be pouring into each other and helping each other out. We're a body of believers that needs to operate that way. Same thing as Pastor said last week. If we're not doing these things together, we're going to fall apart, right? A house divided cannot stand. So we can learn a lot about who we are, what we're called to, through the life of David. And this is another great example of that. And it's not just through the victories, but also his defeats, right? We can learn a lot when he was faithful because we see him rejoicing in the Lord. And then we can also learn a lot when he was faithless because he acknowledged his sins and sought forgiveness from the Lord, right? He didn't try to hide them. He didn't try to make up for them. None of that. It was like, no, I have sinned against you, right? Please stay your hand against them. Put this back on me and my household, right? That's, that's the true repentant heart. That's the man after God's own heart. Now, if we are going to imitate anything from the life of David, that would be it. That's, that's what we need to imitate. For he knew who his redeemer was. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Praise God. Thank you. Hallelujah. You, it's, that's, that's who he is. We cannot compromise. We cannot give in to temptation. We must stand firm in the faith, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Let's pray.